When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a devastating milestone. You know, one of the toughest things to do in this job every weeknight is to report, really to just say out loud, the number of Americans who have died from COVID. It's just it's just breathtaking and shocking. Just moments ago, President Joe Biden marked the inconceivable, unconscionable toll that the coronavirus pandemic has taken in the rich, modern, supposedly sophisticated United States. More than half a million lives just gone. Today, we mark a truly grim, heartbreaking milestone as we acknowledge the scale of this mass death in America. We remember each person and the life they lived. They're people we knew. They're people we feel like we knew. We often hear people described as ordinary Americans. There's no such thing. There's nothing ordinary about them. The people we lost were extraordinary. As a nation, we can't accept such a cruel fate. While we've been fighting this pandemic for so long, we have to resist becoming numb to the sorrow. We have to resist viewing each life as a, as a statistic or a blur or on the news. We must do so to honor the dead, but equally important, care for the living, those who left behind, for the loved ones left behind. That's what has been so cruel. So many of the rituals that help us cope, that help us honor those we loved, haven't been available to us. The final rites with family gathered around, the proper home going. As a nation, we cannot and we must not let this go on. After his remarks, President Biden and Vice President Harris, along with their spouses, participated in a moment of silence at that candlelight vigil to remember those lost. President Biden has ordered all flags over federal buildings to fly at half-staff for five days, yet another departure from what we saw over the previous year as the former occupant of the White House and Republican governors tried to ignore all of that death. We're now belatedly experiencing this grief as a collective together with the president of the United States actually acknowledging its devastation as a central element of his presidency. Biden's first event in Washington with Vice President Harris last month, the night before taking office, was a somber commemoration at the Lincoln Memorial for the 400,000 who'd perished at that time. Those who died almost without comment from the previous administration. And to put this tragic new milestone, more than 500,000 deaths in perspective, take a look at the front page of Sunday's New York Times. Each of those small dots, a person, a loved one, a friend, lost to covid 
depth of that loss has now surpassed even our foreign wars. As more Americans have lost their lives to the coronavirus than on the battlefields of both world wars and the Vietnam War combined. And the Washington Post notes that the staggering loss in a year would instantly fill a new cemetery the size of Arlington National Cemetery. Today, Dr. Anthony Fauci acknowledged it simply didn't have to be this bad. Now, I believe that if you look back historically, we've done worse than most any other country. Um, and we're a highly developed, rich country. But with this tragic milestone, there are signs of hope. New cases have been steadily dropping to levels not seen since the fall. I'm joined now by Dr. Chris Parnell, a public health physician, and Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID. And both of my guests lost their fathers to COVID-19. I want to let each of you have an opportunity to just respond to it. And I'll start with you, um, Dr. Purnell. You know, over the last year, it, it really has been shocking to watch those numbers tick up, then tick up into the six figures, then pass 200 and 300 and 400,000. Um, but each of those deaths was a, was an individual person like your dad's. So I want to give each of you an opportunity to just respond to what it felt like, what it feels like to have a president acknowledge that loss in very personal terms. Dr. Purnell, you first. Joy, I wept. I wept in my living room as I watched the president of the United States um, display empathy, display character, display integrity. Um, I had had a conversation with my brother and he said, one day this nation is going to get it and the, the flags will fly at half staff. And that happened today. And that, that landed on me today. Um, this grief process has been surreal. And through moments like this, I re-experienced the loss of my father. But I have honor um, in his death. Um, his legacy is, is, is not being silenced. His legacy is being remembered and spoken. So I truly, truly appreciate President Biden. For you, um, Kristen, you talked, you know, at the Democratic National Convention just about the heartbreak of watching your father essentially lied to death. Um, you know, and, and we still do have a lot of that misinformation that's out there in the world. But in this moment, um, what did it mean for you just to process a president not lying about the pandemic, not dismissing it, not ignoring it, but just actually acknowledging it and acknowledging his own grief? Uh, it's monumental. And it's also an important first step. I appreciate everything that Joe Biden has done so far, but I also have to say it's still not enough. We have over half a million people who have vanished in less than a year. I hear from people marked by COVID every single day who are calling for more, not just in the response, but also making sure vaccinations are getting to uh, Latino and Black communities who are still not vaccinated at the same amount, as well as creating ongoing and permanent spaces for grief, healing, and recognition. And so we're calling for a holiday for a COVID memorial. We're calling for a memorial on the National Mall. We're calling for funding for local, state, and tribal nations to have permanent space, because if we're ever going to really learn from this and not make the same mistakes twice, we need the unvarnished truth, and we need that to be written in the history books. 
You know, and that's a really good point. I mean, and this is cut to, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around for my, for my producers. Um, it, it, you know, Joe Biden has changed kind of the idea of who should get it, right? Because there has been this really kind of sickening thing that's happening, um, Dr. Purnell, where, I mean, I look at Florida, where you have the governor there going down to a small county and literally giving out the vaccine to his friends, giving it out to his donors, giving it out to people on his side, making sure that the rich, that the privileged, that people that have a Publix in their neighborhoods, meaning they're probably white, meaning they're probably affluent, get it, but not really seeming to give a damn if anybody who's poor, who's person of color gets it, gets the vaccine, I mean, you know, and that we're seeing the vaccine thing play out in this really sick kind of sadistic way. What can President Biden, who has said he wants to see the equities um, put forward and made front of mind, what can he do to change that? That dialogue has to be followed by action. Look, you just described white privilege, right? You described white privilege, which is rooted in white supremacy. Um, and what this pandemic has taught us is that still all lives don't matter. So, you know, I was comforted by the words of President Joe Biden today. Um, I've been comforted by some of the actions that he's already taken in the Health Equity Task Force. But I'm going to continue to speak truth to power, as are others in public health and more broadly in black and brown communities in the American public, because we're not going to see those lives truly matter until all of the tools, access, access is prioritized. You know, we talk a lot about black people and brown people um, being hesitant, being unwilling. I don't think we talk far enough around the information barriers, the language and literacy barriers, the social and cultural barriers, um, the convenience barriers. We need to talk about how systemic racism kills. So I want to see that this president is going to enact policies that not only save black lives from the pandemic, but save black lives across all issues and across all sectors. So um, I'm going to continue to hold um, the administration's feet to the fire, but I am confident and I am vigilant that we're going to do the right thing. You know, and, 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 and you're absolutely right, Kristen. You know, you have, there is the sort of seesaw between do people want to get it or are they willing? I'm seeing more people just in my circle, particularly black people who were very hesitant in the beginning saying, no, no, you know what? We want to get it. We're more afraid of the pand pandemic than we are of the vaccine. But then there's a question of can you get it? Like, can you get access to it if you're in a community that, you know, that, that doesn't have access? But on the side of people who are still misinformed. I, I, I have to come back to you on this, on the, the situation with your dad, because there are still people who are calling themselves news that are still not telling the truth about the pandemic, that are still using the Donald Trump playbook when it comes to talking about it. What do you think that Biden, because he's so personally empathetic, because he's had so much loss himself, is there, do you have hope that he can convince people who are already deeply misinformed about the virus and who still maybe don't believe it, don't want to wear masks. The NIH director said this misinformation basically has killed people. Misinformation is a huge problem. And I'm actually attending a hearing on Wednesday to talk about my experience with misinformation. But the thing that President Biden can do is really harness the full resources of the federal government to get at the people who need to be vaccinated first and know that everybody else will come. We sent a rover to Mars this week. We sent a person and multiple people to the moon. 
we can get into the fields and into the grocery stores and into the churches to ensure that people have the opportunity to learn about the vaccine and get it in their arm. There is no excuse for three and a half percent of Latinos and four and a half percent of black folks to be vaccinated in comparison to nine percent of white people whenever we know that blacks and Latinos are on the front lines. We can do this. Yeah. Absolutely. And not to, to say nothing of the indigenous communities and AAPI communities, because, you know, don't think that Asian Americans are out there with the lots of money. That is just a stereotype that isn't true. There are lots of communities out there that need this vaccine. Um, Dr. Chris Purnell, Kristen Urquiza, again, we're so sorry for your loss. And thank you very much for spending some time with us on this important evening. And up next on the readout, he is a loser, loser once again. The former president's fight to hide his tax records. That's over. His former fixer, Michael Cohen, joins me next. Plus, Ted Cruz makes a pathetic, pathetic attempt at an image makeover, tweeting out pictures of himself handing out water to the Texans he abandoned. Hard to believe, but once again, he's not the absolute worst. The big reveal is coming up. And be sure to join us on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern for a special edition of The Readout. I'll be joined by Dr. Anthony Fauci and members of the Congressional Black Caucus to discuss racial disparities in the COVID crisis. Go to msnbc.com slash town hall to be a part of our virtual audience and to submit your questions for our experts. Get on there and do that right now during the break. The Readout continues after this. A Supreme Court decision today shut down Donald Trump's Hail Mary bid to keep his tax returns out of the hands of New York prosecutors. It marks a final defeat for the now ex-president who's under investigation for possible insurance tax and banking fraud, along with other crimes. The New York Times points out that this could lead to the extraordinary possibility of a criminal trial for a former president. And as we already know, prosecutors have said the tax returns and other financial records are vital to their inquiry. That probe is being led by District Attorney Cyrus Vance, whose reaction to the news story today was short and sweet, saying only that the work continues. This comes after Vance hired a veteran prosecutor who specializes in white collar and organized crime cases. Last week, he interviewed Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, which was Cohen's fifth interview with Vance's office to date. And I'm joined now by Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen. He is the author of the book Disloyal and the host of the Mia Culpa podcast. And uh, thank you, Michael. Always appreciate you being here. So you're a a lawyer. You're familiar with the, of course, you're familiar with the way it works. I know I've been in a grand jury and I could always tell when that prosecutor wanted, you know, you could tell what the prosecutor wants, right? You've seen in these cases where there's been a a police officer that's been accused of of, of killing someone. And you've seen like in Kentucky and other places, it was pretty clear that the prosecutor didn't really want to prosecute. And then that happened. Could you tell in sitting with Cy Vance's office now that you've done for five times, do you get the sense that they are ready to prosecute this man, Donald Trump? Well, look, right now they're in the process of waiting for Mazer, which is the accounting firm that's been handling uh, Trump's taxes for a long, long time. They're waiting for that information. And basically that information will just assist in corroborating all the other information that they have gathered over the course of the past three years when they first started this investigation. Okay, but did you get a sense just in talking to them that could you tell whether in your mind 
this is leading toward Al Capone, an Al Capone sort of scenario, <laughs> or whether it's just an inquiry that could leave Donald Trump free and clear, just from your sense of talking with them. So my sense is that Cy Vance, uh, who is politically astute, did not bring in the likes of an individual like Mark Pomerantz, a incredibly well-known uh, and prolific attorney when it comes to this area of significant financial crimes, uh, as well as complex financial crimes. Um, they didn't bring him in, not for not to bring an indictment. And I suspect the indictment will probably be uh, sooner than later. We know that the case that you were involved in, the hush money case, is pretty much dead, um, that the prosecutors in that case have kind of let that go. So now the focus really is on this potential that you talked about and testified under oath about, about potential insurance fraud and tax fraud. You testified that Donald Trump would lever the value of his properties up and down, depending on whether it was for purposes of getting a loan or for filing an insurance claim. In your mind, did Donald Trump commit tax and insurance fraud? So the answer is yes, but Joy, I think you're conflating a couple of different things. It's the SDNY that dropped the issue with the hush money payment. Right. Cy Vance and his mm-hmm. team are not dropping it, and it's actually a an element of the more than dozen topics that they have grilled me on for many, many hours. So that's the SDNY. And I've called on other MSNB shows. I believe it was Alex Witt over the weekend when I turned around and said, um, if in fact the new AG is Merrick Garland, I would ask that an investigation be opened as to why. Why is it that I should end up going to prison for another man's dirty deeds, meaning the hush money payment, which I had been emphatic and continuously stating the same, which is that I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of individual number one, and we all know individual number one is Donald J. Trump. Indeed. So this is the Southern District of New York, as you were accurately said, has dropped the case, at least for now, in terms of the hush money payment. So your view is that you believe that if Merrick Garland is in fact confirmed, and he will likely be confirmed, that the Justice Department should look into the hush money case? I believe so. And I believe that there are other elements that they should also look into. We've now known that Donald Trump's banks have walked away from him. Most of them stopped doing business with him, Deutsche Bank and others. He's sort of been left out there hanging. He's in a lot of legal trouble. In your mind, does he have the kind of money, the kind of cash on hand to be able to fight these legal cases? Or do you think that his debts will be his next crisis? Yeah, the debts are definitely going to be his next crisis. And just to be a little bit more specific, it's legitimately two banks. It was Deutsche Bank and then Ladder Capital that provided him with the almost in the entirety of the loan that he is currently owed uh, or that he currently owes. Uh, he does not have significant cash on hand other than the money that he's managed to grift from unsuspecting Republicans into the 200 plus million dollar range, which to me, I don't understand. Yeah. And if any of them are watching your show, I would implore them to stop because <laughs> The man is a grifter. And basically all he's looking to do is to take their money right, and to put it towards his obligations. But what's really going to be his downfall is once they start to um, go through the tax returns and they start to see all of the tax evasion and other improper tax manipulation that was done, what will happen is there's also a fraud, a tax fraud penalty 
um, that will couple with the amount that he basically owes the U.S. government, the state and the the city of New York. It's a very significant fine. He'll have to start selling off assets. And remember, when you start selling off assets, you also have a taxable consequence because his basis Mm. is so low in so many of them. So it's going to be a a, a real conundrum for him. Yeah. And he doesn't own most of the things that have the name Trump on them. We should we should note that. Uh, Do you believe that in the end, Donald Trump, like Al Capone, will go to prison? So this is a little tough. This is a tough question, because do I think he belongs in prison? The answer is yes. But I think it's very difficult to incarcerate a former president simply because he has information which could pose a serious national threat to this country. And let me tell you emphatically that Donald Trump would sell that information. I truly believe it. Or he'll just start bragging to another inmate. (laughs) And the next thing you know, you have a national security problem, which is why I think Joe Biden appropriately and intelligently went ahead and he cut um, Donald Trump off from you know, from briefings that that's never been done before. But I think President Biden was absolutely 100 percent on point because he cannot be trusted. So how do you put somebody in prison unless you build them their own cadre somewhere on the facility or you basically remand him to a home confinement with very, you know, very strict um, guidelines? Yeah, that sounds like a, like a Jeffrey Epstein sentence, like when the first time that he was convicted on sex crimes charges. Uh, my last question to you, you did predict in your testimony and you have said very openly that you did not believe that Donald Trump would accept a peaceful transition of power. That is one of the things you did say on the record. We now saw that that was a- absolutely the case. In your mind, does Donald Trump have any love for the United States or for democracy? Do you think that he is a person who loves or respects the United States and our democracy? I think Donald Trump loves only one thing, and that's Donald Trump. And I believe that Donald Trump, had he been successful in this reelection, he would automatically be looking to figure out how to shred the Constitution so he can have a third, fourth, fifth term. Ultimately, really, what he wants is to be a monarch. He wants to be an autocrat in this country to the same extent that Vladimir Putin controls Russia. That's what he's really looking for. Well, you know him. Uh, and uh, so take it from somebody who, who knows Donald Trump personally. Uh, Michael Cohen, thank you very much. Really appreciate you always being on and being so open about all of this. And up next, Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland said that he intends to make the investigation into the January 6th insurrection his top priority. Heinous attack that sought to disrupt a cornerstone of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to a newly elected government. Plus, shocking new details from that investigation. We will be right back. Most of you remember Judge Merrick Garland because of what Mitch McConnell did to him. Now, five years after Mitch and his Senate Republicans blocked his nomination to the Supreme Court for no other reason than that President Barack Obama had nominated him, Garland is President Biden's nominee for attorney general. And today he made his case for the job. Where my grandparents fled anti-Semitism and persecution. The country took us in. And I... 
And I feel an obligation to the country to pay back. And this is the highest, best use of my own set of skills to pay back. Garland, who oversaw the Oklahoma City bombing case, the worst act of homegrown terrorism in the nation's history prior to the January 6th insurrection, warned that we are facing far more threatening times and promised to make fighting the threat of domestic terrorism his top priority. What's going on in America? Was Oklahoma City just a one-off unrelated to what happened here? I don't think that this is necessarily a one-off. FBI Director Ray has indicated that uh, the threat of domestic terrorism and particularly of uh, white supremacist extremists is his number one uh, concern in this area. We are facing a more dangerous period than we faced in Oklahoma City. If confirmed to the office held by America's single worst attorney general, William Barr, Judge Garland will lead a battered Justice Department forced to confront this rapidly ballooning threat. Last Friday, the DOJ indicted nine individuals associated with the extremist group, the Oath Keepers. The grand jury found that the Oath Keepers arranged firearms and combat training and donned paramilitary gear as they attacked the Capitol. In a new court filing, one of the Oath Keepers members, Jessica Watkins, claimed that she was not a participant in the insurrection, but was instead working security at the rally. Her lawyer says that Watkins was there, quote, to provide security to the speakers at the rally, to provide escort for the legislators and others to march to the Capitol, as directed by the then president, and to safely escort protesters away from the Capitol to their vehicles and cars at the conclusion of the protest. One of the officers defending the Capitol that day told ABC that those so-called protesters were actually terrorists and racists whose goal was to overthrow democracy. I call it a couple dozen times today protecting this building is this america they beat police officers with blue lives matter flags for more i'm joined by malcolm nance msnbc counterterrorism and intelligence analyst and paul butler georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor thank you both for being here and malcolm uh you know i retweet you a lot my friend uh we have been doing this for what is this like five years now um you wrote in a 2020 book proposal that i liberally retweeted you wrote this i hate being right october 2020 book proposal win or lose come early 2021 the united states will find itself quite possibly facing an underground of armed white militiamen who will start waging a clandestine war against the Constitution itself in the defense of the cult of Donald Trump. You likened this group to the Klan. In your mind, yeah. is is that what you would consider everything from the Oath Keepers, who now just claim they're just security, uh, to the Proud Boys and on and on and on? In what way is this, in your view, similar or sort of likening likened to the Klan? Well, you know, at one point, the Klan was very popular. Uh, if you were politically ambitious, you had to be a member of the Klan. But when it started out early on, it was a clandestine organization. As you know, they wore white hoods and rode around in order to terrorize black populations so that they wouldn't rape any of the benefits of the federal government. They were also an anti-government organization. So now what we see is a transformation of the people who all attended the uh, August 2018 Charlottesville rally. And after the rally, when the national opprobrium was too much for them, the shame was too much, apparently they went underground. They didn't. What they did Mm -hmm. was they started coming back together and congealed together 
as a sort of informal paramilitary of the Trump campaign. And last summer, when the Black Lives Matter protests happened, they were there as an extension of that. And that's why I said it's coming into the election. It appeared that they were going to be something, whether they were underground informal brown shirts or, as we saw them manifest on January 6th, an actual insurrectionist organization loyal to one man. Yeah, indeed. I'm going to need those uh, future lottery numbers since you seem to know everything that's going to happen in the future. Um, <laughs> Paul Butler, let's talk a little bit about the sort of bigger picture in terms of not just the people who did it, but that required money. We know that the, you know, the public's co-founder funded some of the actual, the, the ellipse sort of events. And so we know where some of that money came from. But here was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse today uh, questioning Merrick Garland about that issue of who funded the overall attack. With respect to January 6th, um, I'd like to make sure that you uh, are willing to look upstream from the actual occupants who assaulted the building. You will not rule out investigation of funders, organizers, ringleaders, or aiders and abettors who were not present in the Capitol on January 6th. We will pursue these leads uh, wherever uh, they take us. You know, Paul Butler, I wondered if at some point um, Senator Whitehouse was going to look to his left or his right, because some of the same funders, aiders, abettors are members of Congress, maybe people who fund members of Congress. This was an effort that was very much in the Republican sort of sphere. Um, how far do you anticipate a, uh, the Justice Department being able to go with some of the aiders and abettors sitting in the United States Senate? So, Joy, right now the FBI says that it's served 500 search warrants and opened 400 case files on the insurrection. Presumably, there's got to be an investigation of the kingpins, not just the 800 people who invaded and attacked the Capitol, but their leaders. And so the FBI says that it's looking at people who influenced the insurrection with words, with networks, with deeds, and with money. And so among those prime suspects isn't the word that the FBI uses, but I'll use that word, thinking and looking at what people like Roger Stone and Alex Jones have done. They promoted the hate groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. They have personal and business relationships with them. In his own prosecution, Roger Stone said that he trusted Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, so much that Roger Stone gave Tario his social media accounts and his cell phone to use on his own. And this is the same Rick Tario who on January 3rd posted, what if we invade it? Joe Malcolm's right. The sad reality is that right now, Donald Trump controls, he commands an army of white supremacists and domestic terrorists who apparently will stop at nothing. Well, I mean, that's why people coin the term y'all Qaeda, right? I mean, Osama bin Laden didn't do any of the things himself. He just simply directed other people and they did it. And that's why the term sort of uh, works in this instance. You know, Malcolm, what do you make of this Oath Keepers uh, woman who the Oath Keepers, by definition, are law enforcement, military. These are people who know how to use weapons and a lot of times have weapons, claiming that she was just security, meaning implying she was security for members of Congress and for others. 
Well, you know, Jessica Watkins and the other co-conspirators in that group, they all have rich fantasy lives. So we shouldn't take a lot out of that statement. I mean, just because they come together with Roger Stone and provided security for him, that we do know, um, you know, and they stand in a line between, you know, behind the Secret Service or the Park Police doesn't mean that they have been organized as as real security. So I'll give her that point, because I really think these people do live in a rich fantasy world. Look, these people were also believing that they had heavy weapons stored across from, uh, you know, across the Potomac River and that they were going to have boats shuttle them over and they could actually, you know, lay siege to the Capitol. They came armed. They came prepared. They came wearing body armor and helmets. But, you know, it was the mass of 40,000 and protesters pushing that, you know, the extremist edge up into the Capitol, who did open battle, open battle for hours. And I know I watched their own their own live streams, gave it to us. But, you know, they have this bizarre victimization trick that they do. Uh, somebody called it Mar-a-Lago syndrome, where as soon as they're caught, <laughs> they all switch and they they claim they were never there. Uh, you know, it's sort of a reverse Stockholm syndrome. Now they're claiming it was all Antifa that was there and that, you know, the thousands of right. thousands of people throwing Trump's flags as spears were all part of some liberal imaginings. Yeah, people are going to kids are going to start saying Antifa is why they didn't clean their room and they're the ones who messed it up. Last question to you, Paul, uh, Paul Butler. You <laughs> mentioned Enrique Tarrio, the rather ironic leader of the Proud Boys, who is a, as a man of color. Uh, his own lawyer said that in the, in the past he snitched. He's told. If, if you were a part of this investigation, would he be the first stop in your uh, on your list in terms of somebody to talk to and maybe get intel from? Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Yeah, again, he's a proven snitch. Um, nobody should take his word further than they can see him. So they'll have to have receipts, the FBI and the Justice Department will, to believe the things that he says. But yes, again, they're looking hopefully at the kingpins, the leaders of the investigation. Tario ran the Proud Boys, and he apparently knew a lot about what was going to go down on January 2nd. So the chances are, if he's looking at crimes possibly being charged for incitement or a conspiracy, he's going to sing like a parrot. 
Yeah, Francis he Berkeley. and uh, the other uh, man of color, Ali Alexander, about to find out they are men of color uh, in the criminal justice system. Good luck with that. Malcolm Nance, Paul Butler, thank you both very much. Still ahead, as we continue to mark Black History Month, Eric, Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow are here to talk about their new podcast, exploring the arguments for and against reparations. You don't want to miss that. But first, tonight's absolute worst is next. Texas is still reeling from a full-fledged catastrophe, a record-setting blast of winter that bludgeoned the state's power grid and robbed millions of Texans of power, heat, and water. In many ways, the crisis echoes what we've seen for a year in this pandemic, the ways in which constituents are left to fend for themselves as their elected leadership ghosts their responsibilities. Ted Cruz. Even on mop-up duty following his ill-timed jaunt to Cancun seems to make volunteer work about his political image, creating a photo op showing himself passing out water and then posting those photos on his own Twitter account. We know that Cruz wasn't the only Texas public official to abandon the state in its time of need. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was in Utah during the freeze for a, quote, previously planned meeting, while State Representative Gary Gates traveled to Florida on a private jet. Those who were actually in Texas included Beto O'Rourke, who was organizing relief efforts, while Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York, not Texas, volunteered at a food bank in Houston. The two also raised $5 million in relief for Texans. Meanwhile, Republicans are fundraising to help themselves and their own careers. Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee held a fundraiser at Trump's Mar-a-Lago clubhouse on Saturday, charging $10,600 per couple. See the one six there? To commune with the Captain and Tennille of professional Republican trolls, Matt Gas Mask Gates and Lori Pew 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 Bobert. Even while millions suffer and as dozens perish, the GOP's focus on fundraising maintains a strict focus on themselves. But that isn't the only reason so many Texans are cold and in the dark. And believe it or not, it's not the absolute worst. This crisis is linked to the uniquely Republican obsession with deregulation. It's the reason Texans are now on the hook for astronomical electric bills, one as high as $17,000 just for keeping the lights on during the storm. The recipient of that bill, an Army veteran, has emptied his savings account to pay the bill, which was charged to his credit card, meaning Texans who are just now recovering from the devastation of the storm will now face mountains of debt. As we've mentioned on this show, this is happening because Texas lawmakers deregulated the state's energy market back in 2002 under a previous Republican governor, leaving customers vulnerable to massive price spikes. In the deregulated market, Texans can opt to pay wholesale prices for power, which is cheaper when the weather's great, but those prices can spike immediately when there's high demand for electricity, like last week during the storm. And now those bills are coming due and those companies are going to want their money. And make no mistake, the collections agencies will follow. This is the GOP's promised land, a hands-off government that leaves the burden on you to dig yourself out of a climate and natural disaster crisis, forcing millions to drown in bills, ranging from medical bills to home repair, forcing them to rely on charity or a GoFundMe campaign in place of what the government was literally created to handle, which is why the whole Republican philosophy of governing is the absolute worst. More on the readout after this. We're hidden in the corners of this nation are those of African-American heritage, the descendants of enslaved Africans 
who have felt uh, the sting of disparities. They continue to feel that sting. Now more than ever, the facts and circumstances facing our nation demonstrate the importance of H.R. 40. Every Congress has introduced a bill to study reparations for the black descendants of enslaved people ever since the late Congressman John Conyers first introduced it more than three decades ago. And every Congress has failed to pass it. Now, we're not talking about, you know, actual reparations, just a study. But advocates for the bill are saying that this actually could be the year that it gets passed. Following last summer's nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd, which put the issue of racial injustice front and center, it passed. It would mean we would be one step closer to addressing the wrongs inflicted on black Americans for generations. And joining me now are actress and co-founder of Color Farm Media, Erica Alexander, and filmmaker Whitney Dow. They are the co-hosts of a new podcast, Reparations, The Big Payback. I love it. And I love both of you guys. So thank you so much for being here. Eric, I'm going to start with you. The Big Payback. Thank you. Okay. Why the, yes. why are you guys doing this? Um, why are you guys doing this podcast and what do you think that it will change? Um, because of COVID-19, because of George Floyd, because of Ahmaud Aubrey, because of the insurrection, because of poverty, because of the fight for 15, you know, I could go on, but I tell you, it's a sign of the times now that we're able to talk about reparation and it doesn't sound like some sort of lunatic idea. Reparations is a remedy for wrongs committed to African-American descendants of slavery. So certainly it will always be a very poor proxy for real justice for us, but you can't give that after 400 years of slavery. And um, I think right now people are seeing that this legislation um, that's real and unspoken that has targeted targeted Black Americans for so long um, needs to be remedied. So that's why now. And I say, why not? Let's make a real democracy and a more perfect union. Yeah. And, you know, Whitney, I'm going to ask you a question. You probably get asked all the time because you do a great thing called the Whiteness Project, which is brilliant. Everybody should look it up. Why are you doing this? Why are you involved in a a project about reparations? Well, you know, look, if you make a mess, you got to clean up your own mess. Right. You don't want other people clean it up. But I really think it's, you know, so um, I actually think, you know, more seriously that I think a lot of the divisions in this country stem from the fact that we've never really addressed the divisions that exist from slavery, the legacy of slavery. And so I think, you know, for us to move forward as a country, we really need to figure out how do we heal that division? And I think the first most important uh, step in that is us to admit that we're that, you know, admit the injury and make reparations. Yeah. They, uh, so the Independent had a piece that said slavery reparations could have reduced COVID infections and death. There's a Harvard study that showed that reparations payments could narrow the racial wealth gap and narrow disparities uh, in access to health care, housing and employment. And this is just a study. If there was just financial reparations, what a difference it could make in the country. Now, let me let you guys listen to what White House, the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki. This is the exchange when she was asked about whether the president, President Biden, supports the idea of reparations. Take a listen. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. 
Would he support the bill? Because you're talking about the study, but if the bill came to his desk, would he sign it? Well, it's working its way through Congress. He'd certainly support a study, but we'll see what happens through the legislative process. But he doesn't support a reparations executive order. He wouldn't sign it. Again, he well, it, it would be up to him. It's a, you know he he has executive order authority. He would certainly support uh, a study, um, and we'll see where Congress moves on that issue. Erica, that looked like I gave a dodgeball to, to me. It doesn't seem. Uh, <laughs> your thoughts? Uh, you know what? I for a lo very long time, it's been very difficult for politicians to put themselves behind this in any sort of real way. I mean, right now they're talking about the bill HR forty, which is just a discussion of it, and so I think he can back that and feel like he hasn't backed reparations. But it was literally something that could kill your campaign if people sniffed you out and thought you were for it, you know, before. So I can see why she's doing that two-step dance and dodgeballing and all that. But, uh, you know, it's it's here and it's now and, and they can't sidestep COVID. And th what this plague brought up was the invisible caste system that exists. And it ripped the, the bandage off and the, the wound has, is leaking all over the place. It's time to deal with it. You know, and, and Whitney, whenever you bring up the idea of reparations, people who, who freak out about it generally will say, you know, my people came here from Germany, like Donald Trump's in the, in the 18, you know, 70s, or they came here in 1920 from Italy, and we didn't do anything to do with slavery. Why should we have to do anything? Why should we have to participate in it? Why should we have to, you know, why should my tax dollars have to go to people who are enslaved? That's generally the question that comes up. What would be the answer to that? Well, I think that, I mean, it's just pretty simple. I mean, I think that especially when you talk about people who don't have a lot of money or feel like, oh, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm working, but they don't see what they were, what not, it's not only what was taken from black Americans, what, what was not, what was given to white Americans and not given to black Americans. And you really see the advantages around you all the time. And I look at, you know, the numbers don't lie, Joy. I mean, I know you're a big data person. I'm like, you know, whether it's healthcare outcomes, whether it's home ownership, it's education, it's marriage, it's marriage. You look at the numbers. It's like incontrovertible. The effects of slavery are still, uh, are, you know, are still with us. They're everywhere. If you look, even not even closely, if you look just honestly, you see them everywhere. And um, and so it, the, the idea that somehow that something in the past doesn't like manifest itself in the present just seems kind of absurd to me. And, uh, you know, Erica, there's a town called Evanston, Illinois, that's actually doing this. How did this go yes. over when uh, a, a very small reparations plan was passed? Um, they are because so we should give a shout out to Alderwoman Robin Ruth Simmons, who passed the first reparations bill in American history. She called the Rosa Parks of Reparations in Evanston, Illinois, in 2019, um, in, in a, a very fortuitous way, the 400th year of anniversary that enslaved got here. She's working on it. They passed it and they're figuring it out. They're asking these questions right now. Yeah. When you tell you that we're following her, we've been um, documenting her in a documentary and she's amazing, but it is a difficult thing to put together. Absolutely. Well, you guys, you can all listen to Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow's podcast, wherever you get podcasts. It's called The Big Payback. Thank you, Erica and Whitney. That is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.